0: I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Wanora people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging.
1: I kind of like the fact that out of the 120 plus producers here in Hunter Valley, pretty well everyone is going to have at least one salmon and one Shiraz. Um, But I'm the only one that just totally focuses on those two varieties. So I guess it's it's my point of difference.
0: This is over a glass. I'm Shantae Whale. Andrew Thomas, more affectionately known as Tomo, is a personality in the Hunter Valley like no other. Known for his meticulous craftsmanship of Semillon and Shiraz, his brand Thomas Wines are a yardstick of quality in the region. Hi Tomo, thanks for joining me. Hey,
1: Shantae, how are you?
0: I'm really well, thanks for making some time. Thank uh, you for the lovely intro. Oh, it's it's uh, all true, and um, I actually actually had you pegged as one of my first ever um, interviewees, but uh, it's taken us this long to get here. But we, we we're here finally.
1: That's nice to be here finally. Better better um, rather soon, better later than never. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Now tell me a little bit about your first memory of wine. I believe your father Wayne Thomas might have had something to do with that.
1: Yes, I. Um... Um, my father, Wayne, um, was a veteran winemaker, um, mostly in the Clarence Vale um, for many, many years. He actually started in the brosser Valley working under Peter Lehman back in the, uh, the late 60s. And um, I was obviously very, very young then. So I guess my first um, memory of wine is um, was when they... Um, eventually set up um, the first wine brand called Fernhill Estate. Some of your older listeners may remember that brand. It was um, based in McLaren Vale. We had a um, property on Ingleby Road um, in McLaren Flat. And, um, you know, I I, I guess I don't, without sort of um, any sort of specific memories, I just, I, I obviously recall sort of growing up amongst the wines and vines, um, in McLaren Vale. Um, actually, my, I, I guess my first memory was when he worked at um, Ingleby Wines, which was just across the road from Fennel, what eventually became Fennell Estate, and that was um, he was working under the legendary Jim Ingleby um, back in those days. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I remember, um, you yeah, know, it was a very old historic winery and um, there were rows and rows and rows of uh, the, the large rectangular open um, wax line fermenters, and and I remember each year all the um, the tracks used to go down between the rows of fermenters, where they'd because um, it was all thrown up the skins were all thrown out over the top of these fermenters into open basket presses, and then the basket presses wheeled on these little carriage ways um, back to the sort of central location where the where the um, <coughs> hydraulic water um, hydraulic-operated ram came down and pressed them out and. Then they get carried out outside, and the and the, uh, the the cages get lifted off, and all the dead you know the press skins forked out onto a pile. Um, and I do I kind of recall maybe I was over there one day. I must have been six or seven years old, and um, Dad got me on the job of with a knife, um, you know, poking all the, the skins that were caught between the slats in the uh, in the basket press out. And I'm pretty sure I got 20 cents for my work that day. So yeah, happy memories, and then obviously when they set up funeral estate just across the road, um, you know when you're when you're in the wine industry, and particularly I guess when um, your work is, is is on the same property as where you live, you can't really you can't really escape it. It's just part of your life. Um, I don't think I really thought too much about the winery back in those days. It was just part of the, sort of the kids, you know, everyday life. Mum and Dad would be up at the winery either working or looking after cellar door and. And that's just the way it was.
0: I always think about that because I think when you are so young and you don't really appreciate, you know, the joys of wine, is it just that, you know, they're just kind of farmers and then they just work a lot? Was that your impression of what they did?
1: Pretty much, yeah. You know, um, particularly um, you know, back in those days, um, there was probably – I'm taking a guess here, and we're talking sort of early mid '70s. There was probably 20 brands in, in the whole of McLaren Vale, so the industry was much smaller than it is today. Um, but regardless of whether it's you know 50, 60 years ago, or um, or, or today, when you're when you're operating a small business, when the wine industry, um, you know, you tend to be jack of all trades. You do everything. And you work your butt off to try and make a living, and um, so Mum and Dad were, were always working. But you know, the house was sort of just down behind the winery, so they weren't too far away. And we'd you know, pop up to the winery if we needed something. And um, this just yeah, was just the way life was. It was good, you know, living in the country certainly has its uh, its benefits. Um, so yeah, it was you know a happy upbringing.
0: Well, lots of fresh air, which is always really nice. Do you remember the first time you ever kind of got a buzz off wine or the first time, maybe you got more than a buzz, the first time you kind of actually drank a glass of wine and whether or not you liked it or didn't like it?
1: We, we were encouraged to have a taste of wine around the dinner table um, when we were young, but, um, it you know, it, it, it wasn't something that I particularly looked forward to every day. It was just, you know, I think uh, from memory, I think if we might even have a, whatever mum and dad were drinking, that'd give us a little glass diluted with a bit of water, um, which is obviously pretty horrible. <laughs> um, but um, look, I do recall, I think it was, um, it was, it might have been in my last year of high school, um, I was I was doing some um, some casual work um, waxing some tanks in a winery in McLaren Vale called Middlebrook, and um, the winemaker there at the time um, her name was Carolyn Burston, and um, I've you know despite having grown up around wines and vines all my life I really knew very little about wine or wine tasting, um, and anyway we happened to be sitting down for lunch one day and. She brought out a bottle of, um, believe it or not, Sauvignon Blanc, um, but it was from Sancerre, And um, I, I still remember just being absolutely blown away by these flavours that I'd never actually experienced before. And, you know, if I had to put my finger on a point that got me more seriously interested in the wine industry, I reckon that might have been the day. It was. Um, I can't remember what the label was, but I just do remember being quite blown away and, and making quite a quite a, a fuss over like how amazing this wine was. You know, when I was, I don't know, I guess I was sixteen or fifteen or sixteen years old. So it was funny the things you remember, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is, and I think that Sauvignon Blanc is kind of a, a perfect first wine because there's so many recognizable aromatics in it you know like you see so much vibrancy and spectrum of fruit and so I can see that as like someone young that could be like whoa what is this what's going on in this glass where you know so I, I can see that that would be a a wine that would kind of pique your interest so you, did you decide you wanted to be a winemaker and follow in your dad's footsteps or did you go off and uh, try to be a, a footballer or something first?
1: Oh, I would have loved to be a footballer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did play footy but never quite good enough to crack the, um, um, the big league. But um, look, to be honest with you, um, I really wasn't that interested in um, pursuing a career in the wine industry right up until the end of my um, high school years. Um, prior to that, I had um, probably more disillusions of being becoming a musician, um, and uh, and yeah, you know, much to my I guess my my grandparents' dismay more than anything else because you know they they are uh, always in my ear like it's very hard to make a a career out of the out of music and of course you know when you're young you don't want to hear anything like that but it did get to the point where I, I kind of realised that, you know, I was okay at what I was doing, but um, I kind of realised that I probably didn't quite have the talent to, to, to really make it. Um, and that's when, um, you know, I was doing a bit of work um, at a local winery at the time. I, I, I started to, f- to focus my attention more at the wine industry and, and um, you know, see if it was uh, a, a, a serious possibility for, uh, my future career path. Um, so, w- look, when I finished high school, I applied for um, a position um, at Roseworthy um, to do my degree and in winemaking, and um, um, I was obviously accepted for that, not that you need um, massive marks. Back in those days, to get uh, uh, an enrolment in in the winemaking degree at Roseworthy, but um, I decided to take a year off between high school and starting that, um, and I wanted to work as a cell hand um, in a winery in McLaren Vale just to make sure that I was that yeah you know, it's really what I wanted to do. I didn't really want to go and spend go straight out of high school, spend three years doing a degree, and then come out and, and you know realise it's it's something that I wasn't really that passionate about. So I did that. I deferred for that 12 months and, um, and you know, it was clear to me through that, that gap year, if you like, that um, I really enjoyed it. You know, I'd grown up in the industry, so, you know, we, um, we, we, we have, uh, you know, a lot of friends in the industry, family friends. So, you know, I knew this industry quite well. I enjoyed the work. Um, I knew I had a lot to learn, but, you know, I was young and had plenty of time up my sleeve, so um, decided to go ahead with it and um, went to Roseworthy that, that year later and, uh, you know, the rest is history.
0: Came out a better person because of it, no doubt.
1: <laughs> yeah, look, I think that, um, look, and I guess the other thing too is um, having, I guess, grown up in the industry um, to an extent, but also having that year of actual practical application in the winery it I think you know looking back now it, it probably gave me a little bit of an advantage um, over those that had just gone straight into that course uh, with no connection to winery at all because you know you, you have a um, although there's you know a, a lot of um, technical and scientific detail that they teach at Rosalie but at least if you've actually had the practical application, uh, in a winery, you kind of understand that what you're learning is understanding why you're doing what you're doing, um, and that that really sort of cemented the whole thing for me. Once you know, once I started that learning process at Roseworthy and and having that grown up in the industry and having that 12 months of work prior to going into it, it um, it, uh, it it really cemented for me for me that um, this is something that could be um, a lot of fun. Um, as a long-term career.
0: Now, why did you end up feeling drawn to the Hunter? Because McLaren Vale is a beautiful place in the world, close to the coast. It's got a nude beach not far. I mean, why did you feel drawn to the Hunter? Um, The
1: short answer is um, I was offered a job in the Hunter Valley um, in in um, your last year at Rosewood, back in those days, you the, the first term or semester, um, part of the course was go out and you do a vintage somewhere in the industry, and then you know write a report on it um, as part of your assessment. And um, I uh, I actually did I did two vintages that year um, as uh, as part of my course. So the first part was um, I went up and did a vintage with John Cassegrain up in Port Quarry. This is 1986. And um, and then, um, yeah, with the time differences in vintage, I actually ended up going and um, doing another vintage back in the Barossa at um, Bazardoe Wines, which, you know, that label doesn't exist anymore, but um, Doug Lehman, the late Doug Lehman, was at the Helm back in those days. So two very different vintages, and they were quite fantastic. But, look, during my time at Cassegrain, Um, Cassie, John Cassegrain, was uh, an ex-Tyrrell's winemaker, and this was 1986. And uh, the hunter had a lot of rain heading its way, and Murray Tyrrell was in a bit of a panic and uh, was looking around for some extra workers to try and get a whole heap of fruit in before this um, big rain event was coming on. So he rang um, Cassie to ask if he had any spare hands that he could send down for a week or two. And Cassie mentioned that I was there and, and, um, and so they sent me down. I worked my butt off for a couple of weeks. Um, I think if, uh, if there's one thing that my, my parents taught me more than anything other is, um, was work ethic, you know, that's small business sort of stuff, I suppose, but yeah, I worked my butt off and, and, you know, uh, later on that year, um, back in South Australia at, at, at Roseworthy, someone had left Tyrells, and um, I'd obviously impressed enough during my couple of weeks there that they they got in touch with me and you know asked what my plans were at because um, I was in my final year, and um, then they offered me a job as a system winemaker. So I didn't really know much about the Hunter. Um, in fact, you know being a uh, True blue South Australian. I, I was, um, I was born with this extra little piece of DNA in my, in my, uh, you know, m- my personality that you, you, you basically as South Australian you're born with this, um, this natural distaste and dislike of the Hunter Valley, even though you don't know much about it, because you know, particularly growing, growing up in South Australia, you know, it's the home and the Barossa Valley, you know, the home of these big, you know. Full body, dense wines, and and um, a lot of South Australians don't understand, uh, you know, the, the beauty and finesse of more sort of light and medium body styles of Shiraz, myself included. Um, but anyway, you know, Tyrrells, there, you know, to this very day, they're, they're an absolutely fantastic company, and I, I figured that'd be a great start to my career, so I uh, accepted the job. No real. Um, long term plans in fact I, I kind of recall thinking that probably you know two or three or four years um, at Tyrrells, i'd um, you know at the end of which i'd probably head back and and take a a, a job somewhere in south australia and that was thirty seven years ago and here I am still here so um, i don't know it's, it's well it's not hard to explain really often you know I credit the tyrrell family with uh, a lot of my uh, the reason I, I stayed here, um, <clears throat> I ended up making wine for Tyrrell's for 13 years. Um, and during that time, you know, Murray, Murray Tyrrell was alive back in those days, and of course, Bruce. Um, I worked alongside Spin, Andrew Spinnersy. Um, that whole 13 years I was there. And, um, you know, the Tyrrell family are very passionate, um, you know, um, multi generational Hunter Valley wine producers. And they, I guess, you know, it was Murray had a lot to do it. He just really, really instilled a passion um, within me for the Hunter Styles and um, and uh, you know, particularly with um and Shiraz, and they really, they really made me understand that quality has got nothing, is not related at all to sheer weight and power. Particularly when talking reds, even whites. Um, it's more about sort of internal structural beauty and, and integrity. And that's what, um, you know, in the very best years, the Hunter Valley has in spades. And um, yeah, you know, well, granted, we we certainly have some challenging vintages here in the Hunter from time to time when we have a bit of, you know, mid late rain, uh, summer rainfall. Um, but contrary to most South Australians' belief uh, that doesn't happen every year it, it, it happens to varying degrees um, from time to time and occasionally we have a really wet one which is um, extremely challenging but most of the time the conditions up here um, because our have is a bit earlier are conducive to making great wine and in the very best years the wines we produce up here are, are absolutely world class
0: Yep, I would definitely concur with that uh, I want to touch on what you were talking about a little bit with the style of wines made in the Hunter. Um, you know, I think, like you said, depending on where you're from, whether you drink Hunter wines or not, um, it's hard to deny just the quality that comes from the region. But I want to talk about a little bit about Semillon and Shiraz and and the beauty of those wines because. Um, i think that if say if somebody's driving out to the hunter and they've never been out there before they're probably going up for some wonderful concert and they think you know what i'm gonna just go and try the wines tell me about what you love about semillon and what you love about shiraz and why should somebody choose to drink those two wines
1: um how much time have we got
0: No. <laughs> I know, right? Start, you know, you know, here's a better question. That was a terrible question. He, start with this one. <laughs> Semillon is a wonderful white wine. Often, you know, people say it's a great white wine to go with, say, seafood. Why is Semillon a better choice than, say, perhaps picking something like <clears throat> Um,
1: Look, it all comes down to personal taste to start with, I guess. Um, but... Look, the one of the things I love about Simeon, um, and this is really nothing to do with the the actual taste of the wine and why it's you know, um, such a fantastic drink, is that nowhere else in the world produces Simeon quite like the Hunter Valley. Um, it's it's the the style produced here is very unique to our region, um, and. Um, uh, it, it's something that we're very proud of. You know, all the all the WSET students and MW students around the world. If there's one thing they have to know about um, Australian wine, it's Hunter Semion. That's because it's so unique. But, um, so, why choose Hunter Sem? It's it's um, it's very versatile and. Um, I think perhaps something that Ulysses may not, um, that those that haven't been drinking Hunter SEM um, for a little while may not realise is that the, the, the very traditional style of Hunter Semion, which was picked very, very early um, and, you know, is arguably so lean and austere um, that perhaps was often reter- referred to as battery acid. We don't really do those styles anymore. We've got a much better handle on viticulture these days and, um, and to an extent changes in the way that we're doing things in the winery that uh, we're pushing for that extra level of ripeness to try and provide um, young Hunter with some, with some beautiful um, drinkability and generosity. We're still talking about a very, very delicate style. Um, for those, the, the listeners that don't realize Hunter Sim, um we achieve beautiful fruit and phenological ripeness at relatively low sugar levels which therefore correspond to relatively low alcohol levels. So most Hunter Sems are going to be somewhere in the range of 10 or 10.5% alcohol to 11, There's a few that are sort of outside that range, but that's pretty much the average. Um, and because of our quite unique ancient soils and our quite unique climate for growing grapes, we... Um, even at those low sugar levels, we've got a beautiful balance of acidity. And uh, whilst it's, I wouldn't even say elevated, it's it's um, it's at a level where that beautiful line of acidity, which is so important to understand, and that and you know part of what makes it so um, such a beautiful match with delicate fresh seafood. Um, whilst that acidity is there, it's not. I would imagine that almost every single white wine produced in Tasmania and and probably a lot out of Victoria would have higher, like actual measurable levels of acidity. But Hunter Simeon um, has a very low pH. I don't want to get too technical here, but it's the low pH and that moderate level of acidity that gives the perception of that lovely piercing line of acidity. And that's partly what um, gives our wines... Their longevity, but also contributes to that beautiful structure that makes the wine so beautiful with fresh seafood. Um, the other thing, just quickly, about Hunter Sem is you know, when we think of cellaring wine, most people will automatically go s- default straight to red wine, but Hunter Semion is one of those white, vari- white uh, varieties in the world that has. Um, you know, in certain cases, absolutely remarkable longevity. The be- very best examples of Hunter SEM can potentially evolve in, in the cellar for decades. Um, and I, I really do love that part about Hunter SEM. It's probably the thing that the Hunter's most famous for around the world is our bottle-age examples of Hunter SEM. So, you know, it all comes down to personal taste, if you enjoy that really fresh, vibrant, varietal, you know, pure and precise style of undersem, Sem, best to drink it in the first year or two. Um, but if you prefer some, um, some of that, that toasty, you know, lightly brown buttered toast complexities to come through with some bottle age, um, you need to wait at least five or six years for those lovely complexities to emerge and as I say, the, the best examples just continue to um, evolve um, over, you know, you know, the next 5, 10, 20 plus years beyond. Um, and, you know, that's obviously something that we, we as a um, community of, of winemakers in the Hunter Valley are very proud of. Mm.
0: You said that so well. And, you know, what I love about Sam is that we don't look to anybody else in the world. Like you said, we're not looking to France to say, how do they do Semillon? We are the leaders. And like you said, no one else makes Semillon the way that Australia does. And it is at the top of the food chain. Um, the other thing I love is that there is so whether you had drink those almost you know, watery white, young, youthful semions, or something that's beautifully aged, looking, you know, upwards of 20 years, there's always so much flavor in every sip. I, I find it really hard to deny for any other white wine in the world, if there can be that much flavor in in those two spectrums of you know whether it be you know in its teenage years or if it's older or if it's bright and young there is just so much going on in each glass and i think for for what we charge for it you really can't get better value for money
1: i agree i totally agree and um it's it is quite paradoxical that such a a fine delicate pure and precise style of wine can, even as a youngster can have so much intensity and concentration. And um, again, I go back to um, that, you know, that that thing that um, quality is, is, is more about sort of internal structural complexity and beauty than, than anything else. It's the way that all the components of the wine fit in with each other. And, you know, top end Young Hunter Sem just has this energy. And that's probably the best way to describe it. You know, it's, it, yes, it is a very delicate style of wine, but the best examples just have, have this sort of this, um, this energy that's kind of hard to describe why you're getting so much intensity from such a delicate wine, but it is, it is that energy and the way that all the, compo- you know, the acidity and all the components of the wine work together to just make it an absolutely, um, you know, compelling style of white wine.
0: Now, in 1997, you established Thomas Wines. What was the aim at the start? How do you go about going, I'm going to release my own wines? What do they offer that's not already on the market? How do you go about that and what was your aim?
1: Um, look, uh, at nine, uh, sorry, 19, yeah, 1997, um, I was still at Charles at that stage and um, – over the last couple of years, I I kind of had the itch to to do something, you know, with my own label, um, and uh, I I actually caught uh, Murray and Bruce in in one of um, in the same office at, at one day, and you know I've been thinking about it a long time, and uh, I knew I needed to run it by them, so I plucked up the courage to to go and have a chat with them and. Look, I'm, I can't say they were thrilled with the idea, but they weren't going to say no. Um, the only stipulations were that I couldn't do it there at Tyrrells, had to be done you know, offside somewhere else, and don't forget your day job, which is all very fair enough. So the first three vintages, 97, 8, 9, that's right, um, I made in one of my mates' wineries, um, our Sutherland at Capicale is very helpful um, to me early in my career, but to answer your question, um, by that stage, you know, when I think of the hunter, um, you know, we grow all the varieties up here, like every region of the world, uh, in Australia, you know, everything grown, but I guess our main varieties, you know, in my opinion, it's pretty widely regarded that Simeon and Shiraz are the the signature varieties of our region, and um, I don't know, when I'm Um, You know, the Turrells had obviously instilled a a, a great passion for Hunter wine, but particularly these two varieties in me. And you know what? I I don't even know why I went down that track, um, because clearly from the outset, if I was producing a a wider, a a more diverse range uh, of wines to offer, um, you know, potentially could, be, could have been selling more wine, but for to me, to me, from the, from the very outset, I, I just decided, uh, made a very committed decision, just to focus on these two varieties of the Hunter Valley, and I guess it was more about long-term integrity over short-term commercial compromise, and um, I've stuck with stuck with that, you know, that um, to this very day. And um, yeah, you know, again, you know, if I had um, a vidello and some you know some alternative red varieties and yeah. other bits and pieces in my range, you know, I'm sure I could possibly sell him a bit more wine. But I kind of like the fact that out of the 120 plus producers here in Hunter Valley, pretty well everyone is going to have at least one salmon and one Shiraz. Um, but I'm the only one that just totally focuses on those two varieties. So I guess it's it's my point of difference. Um, Clearly, um, if you're going to go down that path, um, you need to be producing wines that are sort of you know, amongst the the top of what's coming out of the region. And regardless of how good a winemaker you are, that all comes down to um, having access to the best quality grapes. So that was that was probably the most important thing um, that I focused on. Um, well, not just in those early days to this very day, is finding the, the the vineyards that can provide me with the fruit to produce top-end top end examples of Hunter Valley Sem and Shiraz.
0: Yeah, I love that, that you only offer those two varieties. I imagine if you had, you know, an accountant or a marketing person, they would definitely be encouraging you to make a rosé or something else. But I like that you've stuck to your guns. Tell me about working with...
1: I do have an accountant <laughs> and a marketing person. than me.
0: Uh, and that's why you haven't been <laughs> conjoled into, <laughs> into producing...
1: Yeah, I look, my cellar door, like my partner Kim and those guys in cellar door every year, are like, "Come on, let's have a rosé," and I'm just like, the more they ask, the more I refuse. I just didn't, don't want to jump on that bandwagon. Yeah, and look to me, you know, there's it's, I guess I, I like the analogy with what I do. It's, it's kind of that um, Burgundian approach. So. You know, when people taste our range, you know, when you go to Burgundy, you know, more, pretty much you get Chardonnay and you know, they grow Chardonnay and they grow Pinot Noir. Uh, and then most of the producers, whichever variety of, or, or maybe both they focus on, there's the different tiers of quality. So they, you know, they've got their, um, the vineyards that are surround the, the village wines, you know, the vineyards on the flats, there, surround the villages there. They're, I guess one of better word entry-level wines. And then, you know, as you go up the hill, top and bottom, you've got um, your premier crew, and then you've got those little strips of, of grand crew examples of just those two varieties. And, uh, you know, my range is structured similarly. I, you know, I've got um, basically just focusing on Semi-On but I've got different um, qualities at um, different price points. And I kind of like that, not that I'm calling myself a big producer, but I, I just love that approach. Um, the Burg- burgundy pies. And it's really quite simple at the end of the day, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is. I mean, you, you want to reflect, you know, what what you're working with. And to that point, um, I want to talk a little bit about your Braymore, Braymore uh, Vineyard and also um, the Shiraz offerings as well. I probably would say, you know, I could pick a Braymore Semion out of a bracket of Semions, and I could probably pick a sweetwater Shiraz over the Kiss Shiraz in a lineup as well. Um, tell me about the importance of site selection in your wines.
1: Um, yeah, look very important um, for anyone making wine anywhere really. Um, but certainly when you've got a business, a one business that's focused just on um, two varieties within a region, um, stylistic diversity is really important. You know, if all the wines tasted the same, it would kind of defeat the purpose of the exercise. So um, absolutely um, of paramount importance uh, and even more so over the years as my my range of, of um, single piñards, Zem Shiraz has grown, um, that um, people can actually see and, and easily identify you know, the subtle nuances that each of these individual sites provide to the wines um, so look at, a bit of a generalization i guess um but generally speaking in the hunter that um the whites particularly sam are generally grown on the the lower lying sandy loam alluvial flats uh, and the reds on the on the darker heavier soils and um I think it's fair to say that most of the classic hunter Sems, you know, the ones that you and and most people will know of um, are generally grown on those lighter soils, um, as is Braymore. Um, Braymore is um, a vineyard that's very close to my heart. Obviously, it was planted in um, 1969, so it's a bit over 50 years old now. And it sits um, pretty much right in the middle of a, it's like a two, two and a half kilometer strip of, um, it's, it's an ancient watercourse that's been silted up um, with this really silty sandalone alluvial soil over you know, the last 10 million years or so. Uh, that whole strip um, is pretty well planted all out to white and very much the majority of the plantings are simeon. Um, Tyrrells have got quite a bit of land along that strip as well. Um, they've got a bit of Chardonnay there, but obviously um, HVD Semyon, that's that's one block over from Braymore. And, you know, I kind of like to think of it as the, uh, the Grand Cru strip of, of soil for Semyon on the Hunter Valley. Others may disagree, but um, it certainly produces some fantastic SEMs each year. And, look, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that you can um, more or less pick out Braymore um, in, a, in a lineup of blind line of young Hunter Sems because, um, and it's true of that whole strip. I think Tyrrell's HVD has got similar attributes that it's a beautiful each way bet. So, um, as a young one, um, stems from that strip have this extra level of generosity still within that very, you know, pure and precise, delicate frame, but they've just got that extra level of intensity and concentration. Uh, in, and generosity, which um, I, you know, I think that makes is a real positive, particularly for those um, that like to drink 100 similong, um in its youth. Um, but at the same time, it has that internal structural complexity and, and beauty to provide some, some, you know, some great longevity. So <clears throat> I put away a few hundred cases of Bromar each year, seller it myself so that those that don't have their own sellers don't miss out on the opportunity to, to see this, um, this marvellous and amazing transformation that happens. Um, and so we have re-released it with six years bottle age and from that point it's up to the people that um, are buying that bottle age Braymore to decide for themselves whether they take it home and drink it that night because it's bloody delicious or they put it down and continue selling themselves um, for the next, whatever, you know, decade or so. To my mind, Brainwall really hits the straps at about 10 years and beyond. That's when, that's when it's really starting to show its true form. I love it.
0: I love it too. And I think that they should do both. They should buy some for drinking now, and they should buy another case for, drip, for putting down in their cellar.
1: The clever ones do. That's right, because obviously there's there's always going to be a premium attached to um, the stuff that we've had to put down ourselves. Um, so yeah, the clever ones buy it at uh, the young one at today's prices and reap the benefits um, a few years down the track. Um, the Reds, um, I um, I just love, Hunter Shiraz, um, and I love like top end Hunter Shiraz. Uh, we've got each year and a. You know, in a good year, most years, um, I'll release nine individual labels of Shiraz, and um, they each have their own subtle, you know, diverse diverse personality. And that, and, and and to be honest with you, you know, when people ask me about my my winemaking and sort of how things have changed over the years. Um, it's it's quite interesting, for, well for me anyway, because um, you know over the last twenty years, I've probably, particularly in the last ten years, I've probably taken a, a much more hands-off approach um, than I was applying um, back in the in the early days in the mid mid-noughties. And apart from the fact that um, we don't need to try and push boundaries and and, may, and you know, try and force Hunter wines to be bigger than perhaps they should be anymore. Um, it's more about as I've um, found new and, and, and struck down, struck relationships with, um, with growers um, that have you know, these amazing vineyards, um, it's really important for me to, whilst my house style will sit across all of these wines, it's really important for me to let the, um, the vineyard do the talking and, and, to, and for the vineyard to be able to provide that. Unique sense of place and personality that um, that says I'm from this place rather than the hand of the winemaker. So things like you know we're not pushing um, for that that higher level of ripeness uh, any more than perhaps we were in um, um, in the early noughties. Uh, we're not working the ferments as hard. Like we're de-stemming um, but not crushing the grapes. Um, we're using much less new oak than um, I was 15, 20 years ago. Um, I don't use any tannins anymore. Um, so, you know, all in an effort to, to all these amazing vineyards that we're fortunate enough to have access to, to really shine through and what you get. And I think, you know, Kiss is obviously our um, inverted commas Grand Cru, making reference to my, my Burgundian analogy before, but... Sweetwater. It's um, you know, I just I describe that as one of my primary crews, but it is one of the most distinctive wines in our range, <coughs> and that's because um of where it comes from. Um that vineyard's in the northern part of the Lower Hunter, a little sub region we call Belford. Up there we have um deposits of limestone and we have this beautiful red loamy soil with Bits of ironstone through it on top, and it has this really distinctive floral element to it, amongst all those lovely red and blue fruits we see in modern Hunter Shiraz. And um, I guess the common thread um, across all of these wines, not just mine, but you know, really good Hunter Shiraz in general, is you know, is we have this this lovely medium bodied, medium bodied weight to our wines. It's not all about sheer weight and power. It's the wines are, you know, they sit in a spectrum of medium bodiedness and you know, there's some in the lighter end, there's some in the fuller end. But at the end of the day, um, Hunter Shiraz is and should be um, medium bodied in weight, and we have a lovely our tannins and our lovely acidity that we have in Hunter Shiraz provide a lovely savoury texture to our wines, as distinct from, let's say, that that sweeter fleshy texture that you get in uh, South Australian wines. So inherently food-friendly, delicious as youngsters, and um, like our Sims, the best examples, have um, quite remarkable longevity and um, just bloody delicious.
0: You got that right, and I'm such a sucker for that Sweetwater Shiraz. It's just so alluring. I can't – it's kind of like a – I don't know when you get that pheromone of somebody you love you know you kind of you're like oh you just <laughs> you just swoon for it and that's how i feel about the Sweetwater shiraz you mentioned earlier uh kim so your wonderful partner is the wildly talented sommelier extraordinaire kim bickley what did her background in wine add to your brand
1: um she's got a um, terrific palette um of course so um you know, it's it never it never hurts to have um, more and more people looking at wines. Um, and look, I'm, she doesn't know this yet, but I'm about to give her uh, um, her latest job of writing some tasting notes for me on all, all our 21 red releases. Um, and she's really good at it. Um, she's got love a beautiful way of describing wine, and I kind of like removing myself from that. Obviously, I'll I'll you know put mine two bob's worth in, but. Um, it's kind of cool having someone that's not intimately involved in the day-to-day winemaking of the wines, but, um, that but but at the same time understands the wines, understands the vineyards, just to write you know if nothing else, some keywords um, to to incorporate into your taste notes. So because you know for me, I'm kind of going to be writing the same thing you know, within reason every year because I, I see the vineyard as providing this style more so than the individual descriptors in the wine. Um, so she's fantastic for that. Um, just as a, you know, a sounding board, um, you know, we run a, a small business here, so um, there's lots of decisions to be made every day. And um, whilst, you know, she's not um, fully ensconced in the business on a day-to-day um Basis, um, obviously, all the decisions made affect all the things we do. So um, she's wonderful at that. She's um, um, well connected within the the on-premise trade, so that certainly doesn't hurt um, getting uh, good seats at restaurants. That's always handy. Um, and you know, look, she, Kim does lots of things. She's pretty busy. She's um, obviously we we have a seven-year-old child, Jackson. Um, who's just awesome. So she's um, kind of a full-time mum there. Um, she she uh, is a, um, a, a guest paladin on a couple of t- um, tasting panels um, that happen here in the Hunter Valley in Newcastle. So, um, you know, a bit like anyone in small business, there's never enough hours in the day, particularly when you've got a seven-year-old in the house. Um, but, you know, she's awesome, as you well know. <laughs>
0: I do, and I think we might have to pick that conversation up with Kim and uh, hear a little bit more about all the other things she, do- she does, but lovely to hear um, from your perspective as well. So I'm at that point now where I need to ask you about, you know, if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life and why. I think a lot of people out there may know some of them from you, but I'd love to hear it from the horse's mouth. What are you going to drink?
1: I'm going wine to leave wines at the end because uh, we all need wine to survive as well. So my first of three beverages that I couldn't do without is beer, because I love a cleansing ale at the end of the day. And uh, you're going to ask me which what kind of beer, aren't you? And you're going to hope I'm, I'm going to be um, quoting some fancy craft beer, but that's definitely not the case for me. Um, I don't mind some crafty beers, but to be honest with you, a lot of them are just, they're a bit like a lot of the, um, the lo-fi wines that we made over the years. They're just not very nice. <coughs> Excuse me, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm just not a huge fan of those really um, fruity tropical hops, beers. So sometimes, you know, look, we're, we're tasting wine, you know, often all day, every day. Sometimes I just feel like, a, you know, something as inane as a, as a Peroni at the end of the day that really doesn't have a lot of flavour. It's, it's more of a sessional beer and it's just something I can drink, enjoy the taste of without having to actually taste it and think about it. So you can put me down for a, a palate of Peroni. That should get me through, maybe not the rest of my life, but next couple of months. Um, next one I'm going to move to spirits and um, I don't really drink a lot of spirits I'll have the occasional gin and tonic (laughs) what are you laughing at (laughs) Um, but I, I am partial to the odd rum and I'm not talking Bundaberg I'm talking like sort of top shelf you know barrel aged rums that are uh uh, more sort of, you know, brandy balloon appreciation than, you know, sh- throwing down a shot. Um, and um, I, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm an aficionado, but I've got quite a few rums in my collection. In fact, uh, just on this last Saturday night, I was in a pub in Newcastle. It was the 50th birthday. And um, we, uh, we spotted a bottle of Diplomatico Ambassador. Do you know it? Mmm, I do know it. It was pretty tasty. I've
0: only had it like f- once, I think, though.
1: It was pretty – I mean, look, it's, it's – there are, there are a lot of really, um, um, you know, fantastic, smaller producer rum from all over the world. I'm pretty sure this is a fairly decent production, but it's um, as I say, it's been uh, barrel-matured for a very long time. It kind of sits alongside, I guess, that um, Zacapa XO. Um, so, yeah, we had a... Uh, Mike Julius and I had a uh, a nip of that each. We just couldn't resist it. $58 a nip, I think it was. It was pretty tasty. So I'll have a pallet of um, of top-shelf rum to go alongside my pallet of Peroni. And then, um, last but not least, wine. You know what? I'll... Um, I'll drink anything if it's good. I'm not interested in, in drinking wine for the sake of, you know, of drinking wine. I've, I've, um, I'll, uh, I'll uh, you know, I, I want to enjoy good wine. Life's too short, you know, all of that sort of jazz to drink bad wine, the whole thing. But if you had to narrow me down, and it would get really boring just drinking one style or one region across the world, I'm not even going to pick the Hunter, which is a bit too obvious. I'm going to, if i got to pick a region around the world, um, as my, um, as my, I'm not going to say my deathbed because I probably choose something else, but something I just love drinking a lot of is uh, Chablis. And um, yeah, we, um, we drink a fair bit of Chablis in this house and I just love it. You know, it's, it's, it's whilst it's getting it's getting more expensive. Um, I think as you know, the price of Burgundy, Cote d'Or, Burgundy, it gets more and more expensive and out of the reach of a lot of the people. Um, and perhaps you know, with the with climate change and Chablis warming up a little bit, a lot of people are turning to Chablis, which obviously increased demand, increases prices. So, but they're still you know they're still relatively inexpensive. Um, and I, I just love them. Um, it's, it's one of those things I see, despite the fact that, you know, we've got a, a very distinct variety difference here between Hunter Semillon and Chablis, which is obviously Chardonnay, um, I, I just, I see a stylistic um, similarity uh, between wines made from these two regions. And I think it's, you know, a lot of the Chablis wines are, are unwooded or lightly wooded. And the best examples from the best vinegars have that lovely, pure line of acidity. Uh, But, of course, they're Chardonnay. So, completely different, but um, just delicious, particularly in summer. You know, just absolutely the best examples are absolutely fantastic. I love them.
0: Mm. It actually doesn't surprise me that much that you said that because a bit like Sam, you can really see – you know, all the distinct uh, vineyards in the wine, you have a nice spectrum of kind of looking at, you know, some of those Grand Cru and the power, more powerful wines, but then the really delicate mineral-driven stuff. So um, it doesn't surprise me. And I think um, three excellent drinks, I now know, uh, a case of Peroni Red, a little bit of barrel-aged rum, and a Chablis, and you're a happy man.
1: Give me a Ravenneau Clos. I'll be... I'll be forever in your debt, Shante.
0: <laughs> Doesn't ask for much. Tomo, it's been such a dream. Thank you for making the time to chat with me. It's been a long time coming and uh, it's always such a pleasure to hear a little bit about what you're up to.
1: It's my absolute pleasure. It's been, it's been great talking with you. Thanks a lot.
0: This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.